Live from the Mecca of Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter, where Mormonism meets biblical Christianity face-to-face. I'm your host, Sean McCraney. We uh, pray that the true and living God will be with all of us tonight. You want to watch the whole temple session, the whole thing, go to hotm.tv. You can look uh, on, uh, our ar- in our archives under episodes, then Mormonism. Click on 2013, and you'll see temple, 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 temple. No, just temple. I think there's seven, maybe eight. And you can watch and you can see what actually goes on in there. So tell your family and friends so they can see what Mormonism is at the heart. We received an email from Kathy, a devoted follower of HOTM and Aletheia Ministries, saying, I think it's apparent that there has been a dark cloud hovering around Sean for a few weeks. His temperament, another new direction apparently regarding hell, and obviously the things that come with running a ministry in Utah, and his determination to stand up for the Lord against the stiff-necked Mormons. We are hanging in there with Sean. I just hope he's not getting off track again. We pray for the ministry and for Sean's stability uh, with utmost love and prayers. So thank you, Kathy, for still hanging in with us and uh, for my temperament and praying for my stability. Uh, It's gonna take a nation to be able to help with my stability. Uh, Unfortunately, and sadly, if if history proves anything, I don't think you'll be around for long. I can see it coming. It's happened proverbially over the years, so I just wanted to point that out. I hope you are, Kathy, but maybe not. How about a thought for your consideration? This one is from Jackie Asimov. It says, Christians do not get to make up what they believe. Everything must be couched in the solid context of biblical view. This being said, we are certainly not obligated to kowtow to the ideas of man, no matter how traditional, popular, or appealing they are to the senses, masses, or even the historical church. Something to consider there. Interesting. You know, uh, Let me pause for a minute with our staff and thank them, our volunteers, people who have been with the ministry forever, who have supported us us in prayer. Uh, Financially, some of you are able to do that as you're led, some not, but you've been there through your prayers and support, and we appreciate you. I wanna thank God publicly for life and breath and opportunity and the unconditional love he bestows upon uh, all of us, uh, good and bad, according to Jesus. And we praise him for his only begotten son who saved uh, wretches like us, for his spirit that sanctifies us. And right along with you, we seek to worship God in spirit and in truth, not in flesh and in error, but in spirit and in truth. And those who seek to do the same, I would lump most of our viewers as as truth seekers, uh, but most know that in order to honestly worship God in spirit and truth, Nothing can come between you and God. No priority, no other thing can get in between you and him. Most Christians increasingly become aware of this once they come to know who God is. I mean, we pretty clearly understand when we realize who Jesus is that it would be important for us to take our idols that are on our mantles and remove them that you can't worship God, true and living God, and your old idols. So it's pretty quick, the Holy Spirit moves us to say, I better put away that little tin God. And um, then we might start to see that in order to really worship in spirit and in truth, and the Holy Spirit does this, mind you, we start putting some distance between our lives of fleshly living and our lives in and through his spirit. Now, for some people, that happens really quickly, and other people's battle that throughout their entire life. But God is with us, and he saved us, and he works through us uh, to bring us to this point. And we become more and more empowered and equipped to set aside the deeds of the flesh, which were so present in our former lives. And the process of progress continues until the grave, really. Remember the story of the rich young ruler who came to Christ one day? He approached the Lord, and this is what he said. Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, why callest thou me good? There is none good but one that is God. But if thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. 
He said to him, which? Jesus said, thou shalt do no murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, honor thy father and mother, and, listen, he throws one that isn't part of those 10, he says, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The young man said unto him, all these things have I kept from my youth, what lack I yet? Jesus said to him, if thou wilt be perfect, go and sell all that hast and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions, Matthew 19. The story, of course, is full of tremendous spiritual implications, but for our purposes tonight, and what I'm kind of talking about, we can see that this young ruler had progressed, apparently, in his religious attempts to reach God, and it appears that by the time he had this conversation with Jesus, he had his act together. But we note that he must have known something was missing. He must have sensed that he was off somewhere. And so he goes to the Lord and he says, what, what do I need to do? And, and Jesus tells him, obey the commandments, and he says, I've done that from my youth. What else? Notice that even though he had lived an apparently good life since his youth, the Lord didn't let him off the hook. He pushed him further. God is constantly seeking to move each and every one of us closer and closer to him. And so Jesus told the young man the remaining thing that, uh, he revealed to him the remaining thing that was in his life that became between he and God. And we all have those kind of taproot issues. We have something that keeps us in the earth, that tap root that keeps that plant strong. And you know, everybody has different ones. And Jesus got to that one, that guy's. He said, look at you, you love money. You love your possessions. So I, this isn't, a, isn't an advertisement of Jesus telling everybody to do that. He's just saying, listen, in your case, you wanna be, you wanna be go and do that. In my case, he might say, you know, stop looking at hot chicks and thinking bad thoughts or something. Or he might say, hey, don't get so angry. I don't know, but he would pick out something in me that he would say, that's just not suitable. The story illustrates a major issue Christians have with Mormons. See, not only does the LDS Church not eliminate the obstacles that get in between men and women and God, but they actually produce and reinforce those obstacles to get in between God and man. For the typical LDS member, their natural family becomes a hindrance to the relationship that you have with God. And their culture and their occupations and their politics and, of course, of course the sold-out devotion the LDS uh, uh, members have for their church and their leaders are all impediments, obstacles that stand in the way of that direct relationship with God. And so we strive ardently to get the LDS members to realize this about themselves and in their relationship to him. So many critics will say of the ministry that we seek to destroy lives. And I guess in a sense that's true because we want to destroy somebody's life who has a bunch of icons, idols still on the mantle and, how, and destroy those, be iconoclasts and have them wipe those off so that there is a clear path to God and let the Holy Spirit continue to work in removing those things along the way. Now, it would be really unfair if I suggested, however, that the LDS stands as the only religious institution that puts obstacles between God and man. Many non-LDS churches and their leadership are no better as they seek to maintain and grow what they have started rather than pursue God in truth with relentless uh, tenacity. And so I suppose what I'm trying to point out is the fact that none of us, LDS and not, can or should allow any precepts or constructs of man to get in between us and our relationship to God. If family, if marriage, if children, if money, if culture, if religion, if government, if your vanity, your beauty, your physical prowess, your fame, whatever it is, if that is, is, if that is a priority, Jesus would look at you and say, get rid of it. And that's the point. With that, how about a moment from the word? And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. 
You may have noticed that as we've come into our own studio this past year, we've tended to be a little bit more friendly toward Mormonism than we were when we were on the local television station here in town. Uh, many, uh, maybe you long for the days of rants and raves. And maybe if we had more phone calls from LDS, that would still be the case. I'm not sure. I hope not. But a lot of you like to see a Mormoniciousness and twistianity uh, pulled out and stomped on because you have lived in the state and, and you haven't had a voice. And so that's, that's appealed to you greatly. Admittedly, the approach served a purpose and remains available out there in the internet and on our archives to anybody who likes that form of apologetic. Um, whether you realize it or not, I have grown up uh, in my character as a Christian on television. Uh, some of you don't know this. Uh, you may fault me for this, but you can fault God because he put me where I am. I never set out to have a TV program. I never set out to do anything. It just, he puts us where we are and he put me here uh, where I am. So even while I attended Calvary Chapel School of Ministry and was required to serve in the church, I worked in the front office during their church services, I went to possibly seven, probably five real Christian church services uh, at Calvary Chapel while I was in their school. I, di I didn't know much, I didn't know any of their music, etc. I left Mormonism officially in 2001, never went to a full Christian service until I entered Calvary Chapel in 2004, and then maybe those five services, and then two years later in 2006, while I was still in school, was offered to host our own show here. And then for those seven years, I never attended Christian churches either. And so uh, some of you remember that in the early shows, someone called in and said, have you been baptized? I hadn't even been baptized as a Christian. I was still a Mormon by baptism when we were doing the show. So in terms of my experience in church, I was unquestionably a babe. And yes, I knew the Bible fairly well and Mormonism even better, but looking back, I sort of thought Christianity was what the Bible described it to be and had no concept how it operated in this day and age. It's intriguing how the Lord brought me along. See, as a Latter-day Saint, I was kind of like a Jew and that's how many Latter-day Saints are. I was under the law. And as a Latter-day Saint, you live by the law. These are the musts. These are what you must do. This is how you must live. This is how you please God. And I tried to please God by doing that as a Latter-day Saint, but their law made me either an arrogant bastard, that's in the Bible, or uh, it filled me with shame because I failed to comply to it. Little did I realize that while I was LDS, and if you've been LDS and are now a Christian, you may, have, you may realize this too about our sovereign God, is that he was showing you, like he showed me firsthand, what it meant to live under the law. Okay, in Romans 3.20, Paul says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. So Mormonism says, do this, do that, you will be pleasing to God, not even realizing that the presence of their laws will always work to make their members sinful, not righteous, because they can't meet, live up to those, and so they fail. It was only when I came to know Jesus that I was freed from the law. This brings us to the next phase of my Christian walk, which was liberty, the next L. The first is law, the next is liberty. And it afforded me by the grace of God through the shed blood of his only begotten son to be free from the chains and shackles of law. And I blossomed in this phase of my faith right in front of the television camera every single week. I was freed from the Mormon thing and I was at total liberty to be who I was naturally as a person and, and then as a believer in Christ. So I mean, 40 years of being LDS under the law, which again only served to make me ashamed and proud, which the law will do, I stepped into live television stage and was able to proclaim Jesus as the way, truth, and life with wild abandonment. There was absolutely no hesitation in anything I said or did because I knew that I was saved. And so I did, I acted accordingly. Jesus hit on what drove me during those years when he said in John 8, 36, 
If the Son, therefore, shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. And then Paul said in Romans 8.20, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. And then as a warning to those people, those Jews, to not go backward and embrace the law, they had come from law, they went into liberty, and he's saying, don't go back to law now. He said, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. So we fought hard to help any and all who would watch those programs to know, throw off Sabbath day, get rid of tithing. You don't have to worry about how you look, believe me. You can drink what you want. You can eat what you want. You're free in Christ. And this message we just exuded as often as we could. Interestingly, the Jews, when they were under the law, they looked around at the rest of the world and they said, the law has made us superior to everybody else, the rest of these great unwashed. And then, and then liberty in Christ sometimes makes Christians to say, we are superior than the rest of the onlooking world. So Jesus comes along, has chosen 12, and suddenly the Gentile world is exposed to this tremendous liberty too. And many people, Jews and Mormons and a number of Christians, they get stuck in the law phase. Number of Christians. They say, oh, you better do this. You've got to do that. you got to do this. And they love that law. The Mormons love it. The Orthodox Jews still love it. And so do many Christians. Now, some Christians, they come to, to Jesus and they experience the liberty and they relish and love that. And some of them sort of straddle law and liberty. And they're sort of, well, I'm free in Christ, but we better do that. And I love the Lord, but I want to please him this way because if I don't, he's going to send me to hell. And so there's kind of this admixture of law and liberty. Many who are once under the yoke of law really know what it means to be free, and that's why they have such liberty. But in my life experience, and I may change on this too, this liberty, the phase of liberty, paradoxically arrives with an ardent, zealous protection against anything that challenges your liberty. And and, and it really is a devotion to doctrine. It's really a strong, strong hold on doctrinal positions because we want to be right in our liberty and make sure that everybody stays true in, our, in their liberty. And so typically you see people who are really in the liberty of Christ very, very doctrinally based. And they, and they really focus on that. And having been so greatly liberated and freed by him, recipients of his grace tend to zealously defend anything that seeks to thwart, challenge, or counterfeit his free and wonderful gift. It was in this state, the second phase of, uh, called liberty, that I hosted Heart of the Matter for those seven years. Uh, and I did it with all my heart. And that's what you do when you're in that stage of your Christian walk, the liberty stage. You, you give everything you've got. But like, like fans of Beatles music, early Beatles music, many of our fans really want me to remain in those years. They, they want me to be free from the law and to continue to ardently fight for doctrinal positions uh, in the liberty I have found in Christ. But is there more? Does God want us to move from the first L, law, to liberty and then into something else? as we mature in Christ? Is there more? Is there something else? Is he bent on taking all people out from under the law and putting them into zealous liberty only to keep us there? I would strongly suggest that he's not bent on this. There's another phase waiting. It's okay if you're in the law, you'll learn. It's all right if you're in the liberty, you will grow. Just as I have grown and continue to grow. But there's a time to step into love. And it doesn't mean you don't speak the truth. And it doesn't mean that you aren't ardent for Christ. And it doesn't mean any of those things, but it is a natural progression of what God does in people's lives to first help us see the right and wrong and then just royal in the liberty and then kind of step back and say, wow, maybe I should look at a little more love. First John 3.23 says, this is his commandment, 
that we should believe on the Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave commandment. The next chapter we read, 1 John 4, 7, 8, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loves is born of God and knows God. He that loves not knoweth not God, for God is love. Yes, share the truth, stripped of all deception, that's a loving act. Uh, but in my phase of Jesus' liberty, I, like many of my brothers and sisters who remain there, became a stumbling block to uh, those who are weak. So certainly, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, but Paul adds, only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. Okay? So many of you have had the un fortunate experience of having to watch me mature in Christ on live television for seven years, going from law to liberty and now to love. And I pray that as we progress forward together, we will have greater love and understanding for those Jews and Mormons and Catholics and Christians who are stuck under law, and that we will patiently bear with the many who revel in Jesus Christ and his liberating, singular liberating grace. And I just pray that you will continue to bear with me as I hope I have stepped from uh, those two first phases and into the last. Whatever occurs, thanks for your forbearance. And with that, with that let's have a word of prayer. Father, we uh, seek you as we explore these different uh, theological differences and as they interrelate to Mormonism and Christianity and where we are today. Help us to uh, understand your will and ways. Let us ardently stand for truth and to contend earnestly for the faith and to be people who do love. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, losing my voice really quickly. Thus far, we've tackled several points of the acronym assigned to Calvin's massive theological summary of Protestant soteriology, and that is known as the TULIP. In light of what we've covered thus far over the past few weeks, which include teachings on total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, the first T-U-L. Thank you. Uh, we received the following email from a viewer named Kevin. It says in part, I've been watching your Tulip episodes with great interest, as I am a Protestant who believes in the doctrines presented in Tulip. I wanted to provide you with a few thoughts so far as it seems the series is gonna be wrapping up. First, your disgust of hyper-Calvinism is legitimate. It's non-confessional. Dort, WCF, B, and he gives a bunch of acronyms, uh, and these are just systems that embrace reformed thought or Calvinistic thought. He goes on, it's not, or he's talking about hyper-Calvinism, is not taught by Calvin himself. I wanna celebrate your denunciation of it. However, I cannot celebrate at times when you seem to muddle the lines and claim that it is Calvinism. As I'm sure you know, hyper-Calvinism really started up, uh, rose up 300 years after John Calvin. You have at times cited R.C. Sproul during the series. R.C. Sproul, he's a scholar who lives today. He's a reformed or a Calvinistic uh, scholar. R.C. Sproul goes as far in his own writings to call the controlling or automaton Calvinism you're describing and identifying with Calvinists as anti-Calvinist, and that's a good sign. Uh, I wasn't aware of this. And he says, here's a short article where he does this very thing. And so the link is there if you wanna look that up and read that article from R.C. Sproul to see where I've been wrong in describing hyper-Calvinism as traditional, just typical Calvinism today. I understand that you have a limited time to read the article, but the subtitles, the double predestined distortion the, the double predestination distortion and the reform view of predestination would be Cliff Notes versions to the larger point. Ultimately, I think TULIP is best understood using the thy will be done framework. I completely disagree with him on that point. Those who are elect will, through the work of the Holy Spirit, want the Lord's will to be done. Well, I can agree with that. Those non-elect will always have the same desires of the first, very first sin in the garden. In the final analysis, they want to be their own God. Act 
Actually, as a Calvinist, I completely agree in your confidence of allowing those who have come to Christ to leave the Mormon church in their own good pleasure. And he goes on to share some other insights. So thank you, Kevin. Let me make a few things clear in light of your email. If I'm blurring the lines between hyper-Calvinism and five-point Calvinism, it is done in ignorance. Uh, I'm not nearly as adept in these waters, and so I'm gonna make some errant assumptions. And while I'll never embrace the Reformed view, um, either hyper-Calvinist view or five-point Calvinist view of soteriology, I acknowledge that embracing the views do not exclude anybody from the throne of grace. Um, I have never believed that a peculiar, non-essential ideology will save or damn another person. Uh, even LDS ideologies are not going to save or damn them. I think they can be damaging and they can serve as hindrances to the full Christian walk, but in terms of them saving or damning somebody, I've never thought that. We are exploring five-point Calvinism as a means to help viewers understand what Joseph Smith understood Calvinism to be, and I think we've been pretty clear on how he viewed their tenets. And yes, along the way, I am openly asking if there's not a better or alternative view than Calvinism, Arminianism, or Mormonism? Is there not a better view that's out there presented only in the Bible that we can look to in order to see our way through this forest? Uh, nevertheless, this is not an indictment on five pointers and their faith and reliance and trust to God. In fact, I find the temperament and, and humor and style of R.C. Sproul and uh, James White's information, and John Piper, very devotional. I don't judge their Christianity in any way. Uh, I try not to judge anybody's Christianity. Uh, I leave that up to God. But in light of scripture, I have a very difficult time accepting the idea that while being sovereign, I do accept God is sovereign, uh, that a God of love would author such a system represented by TULIP. It makes no sense to me. I, I don't understand him being sovereign and choosing to save only some by his goodwill and pleasure. Uh, if he has that sovereign ability and he can save whoever he wants by his own goodwill and ple pleasure, why only save some? Is it so that the some who are saved appreciate the fact that they've been saved and the billions and billions who are not will suffer as a result to give them that appreciation? It's like a lifeguard sitting on the beach and he has 10 rescues that day. And, and the boss comes up and says, how'd your day go? He says, well, I rescued 10 people. And the boss is bummed because no one drowned. Well, how come? Well, if someone drowned, it would make those 10 rescues far more uh, you know, impressive. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. We want a lifeguard who saves everybody. <laughs> and, and we don't appreciate the fact that someone drowned. Uh, 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 we don't appreciate the fact that some are saved by the fact that some are drowned. So I don't understand a sovereign God who can control all things according to the Calvinists, who does control all things, who has foreknowledge on everything, and not by the merits of anybody, chooses some to elect. I don't co comprehend that thinking. Maybe you do if you do call. So all right, we are now at Irresistible Grace. It's going to be a rather quick one. Like the other tenets of TULIP, irresistible grace is tied directly to the other points before and after it. In other words, if a sovereign God unconditionally elects certain depraved souls to life eternal and Jesus atoned for their sins alone and not for the rest of the world, then the grace he extends to his chosen elect, being sovereign, will be received by them, will be. In other words, to the Calvinist, God is all-powerful and his intentions will be realized, so therefore nothing happens that he has not decreed. In light of this, Calvin, Calvinists say that the elect will be elected, they will not refuse election, and in the end they will, re, will remain faithful to the election. A couple quotes and we're going to go to the phone lines. Calvinist E. Palmer wrote something interesting. He said, do not misunderstand the word irresistible. To some, it may give the meaning of causing someone to do what he does not want to do. All that irresistible grace means is that God sends his Holy Spirit to work in the lives of people so that they will definitely and certainly be changed from evil to good people. It means that the Holy Spirit, listen, will certainly, without any ands, ifs, and buts, cause everyone whom God has chosen from eternity and for whom Christ died to believe in Jesus. 
Now, it's a tricky little uh, thing that we just read because he starts off saying, don't misunderstand. It's not that anyone's being forced, but then he wraps it up by saying that the Holy Spirit, no ifs, ands, or buts, will cause everyone who God has uh, elected to believe in Christ. So it's kind of a, he, he, does, he speaks out of both sides of his mouth. Now, there's a better quote here from another Calvinist, and they're softening on these things because people are like, you know, we're getting done with this. It's like Mormons, golden plates, I think we're done with that. We're gonna stop this charade. Well, I think Calvinists are starting to say, really? And so they're softening the position. This is what Timothy George says. Irresistible grace simply means that God is able to accomplish what he has determined to do in the salvation of lost men and women. Arminians are right to protest the notions of mechanical necessity and impersonal determinism suggested and sadly sometimes taught under the banner of irresistible grace. God created human beings. This is a Calvinist, listen. God created human beings with free moral agency and he does not violate this even in the supernatural work of regeneration. Christ does not rudely bludgeon his way into the human heart. He does not abrogate his create creaturely freedom. No, listen, he beckons and woos, he pleads and pursues, he waits and wins. That I get, that I understand. If that's the Calvinist view, I agree with it on this point. Um, we are gonna go, I'm gonna continue on this point given the LDS view next week. Let me go to the phones. We've got calls from Florida, from Arizona, and from Texas. We're gonna to go to Curtis in Clearwater, Florida. You're on the air, Curtis. Hello, Sean, how's it going? It's going well, how are you? I'm doing super fantastic. Uh, first of all, let me say how much I enjoy your show. I uh, just found it on YouTube and have been watching your clips and learning about Mormonism all week. I am not a Mormon, but have uh, known that they were some kind of weird cult since high school when I was shown this cartoon that you can still actually find on YouTube and sure. And uh, so let me also say that I'm not dogmatic about any of this, and I'm interested and genuinely curious about finding the truth regardless of what it is. And you know, hold on, Curtis, hold on one second. Uh, our sound, we've never, we haven't had a problem with sound for months, so is it my microphone? I can hear you. Can you hear me well? Can you get closer to the Phone? I killed him. Can you get close to the phone? I'm, I've got it right next to my mouth. That, that's much better. Okay, I'll did, try to keep it as close to my mouth as possible. Our sound guy is now deaf. <laughs> okay, go ahead, Curtis. Right, sorry. Let me try this again. Uh, first of all, let me say how much I enjoy your show. I just found it on YouTube and have been watching your clips and learning about Mormonism uh, all week. Uh, I'm not a Mormon, but have known that they were some kind of weird cult since high school uh, when I was shown a cartoon that you can actually still find on YouTube in church. Uh, let me say that I'm also not dogmatic about any of this, and I'm interested and genuinely curious about finding the truth, regardless of what that is. Praise God. That, with that out of the way... I, uh, I should start by saying that I do not call myself a Calvinist. I do not I, I only, all I believe is that the Bible teaches in predestination. That's it. Okay. I also am what would generally be considered an annihilationist, and I believe that people, uh, most people at least, will just be destroyed in the fires of hell and not burn forever. There may be some who burn forever. They might be the ones who carry the mark of the beast. Uh, and the angels and the devil will burn forever, but not necessarily all the people. And I also want to say that I, do not, I was not raised with these beliefs. And uh, I believe quite contrary for most of my life until fairly recently when I actually started, you know, reading the Bible yeah. and began questioning what I've been taught for most of my life. Yeah. So I guess, you know, if, if you want to get down to biblical reasons why, uh, to me, the single greatest evidence, I'm sure you, you're very familiar with it, is going to be Romans 9. And I don't know how anybody can read Romans 9 straight without trying to twist it and change it to, as, as you said earlier in the show yourself, uh, anything that challenges our liberty. Uh, we don't want our liberty challenged, and it's very hard to try to accept 
the teachings of Romans 9, but I think unless you're trying to change it, you can only read it one way. And it's very clear God is completely sovereign. It says, I raised Pharaoh up for this very purpose. I, I absolutely agree. I need you do these things to accomplish my goals. I agree with you completely, Curtis. He is completely sovereign. Okay. And so he makes, I mean, it tells you right there that he creates people for the purpose of doing certain things. He hardened Pharaoh's heart. He made him do something that he wanted. He made because he wanted to demonstrate his power to Israel. And that means, yes, as much as you might think death is bad, then even all the, the, the death of Egypt, the firstborn of Egypt, God killed the firstborn of all the Egyptians to prove his power to the Israelites. Yeah. He has that sovereignty. Sure. He creates men. He can do whatever he wants with them. Yes. That's what it says in yeah. the, the, the clay the potter example. I can, the potter has the ability to do whatever he wants with his clay. He can make noble pots. He can make ignoble pots. And there's, what are you to do to say about that? I would agree with you completely. But the question is, my question is not is God sovereign, not has he let uh, people die, not has he uh, formed some and put some in places uh, and then other of destruction and others in places of eternal life. My question is, what is his ultimate aim? My question is, by what means does he do this? My question is, is I, yes, I can see him taking uh, souls who are going to be recalcitrant and difficult and putting them in places and using them uh, in their state of disobedience and, and wiping them out. I can see him doing all of that by foreknowledge. So by his foreknowledge, he certainly is sovereign. Foreknowledge of the free will choices people will make. And, but the end, the, the end question I have is if he is sovereign, uh, Curtis, I want to know a sovereign God who could elect all, why has he only elected some if he is love, as John suggests? Well, it, John says that God is love, but it also says in Romans that Esau... I hated in Jacob by love. Okay. It and also you, says that God hates doors of iniquity. Okay. God is capable of hate. But wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. No, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. Wait a minute. You say he hates iniquity, but you say he's sovereign. Didn't he predestinate and create them to be iniquitous? Well, well it sounds like, okay, what you're really asking me is the, the underlying philosophical understanding I have of the Bible. Yeah. And of creation itself. And... In those terms, I would say that I believe that I guess the best analogy I can have is that reality, everything that God created, all that we see around us, could probably best be compared to a movie. It is a story being told around us. It is a picture being drawn around us. For certain people, there is an audience that he created, his elect, that he's telling a story to. And okay. that is what reality is. Okay. And that, that is what my underlying philosophical belief is. Now, like I said, I'm not dogmatic about any of this. This Good. is just what I Good. have. We're going to go on to the other calls, Curtis. <laughs> I'm glad you're not. We're going to go on to other calls. Stay with us for the next few weeks. And as we unfold what I should, will, I think, be able to clearly articulate God's will and plans, his sovereignty, and how he works in and through men. And it is not ugly. So we'll see what happens. All right. Thank you for calling. Thanks for watching, Curtis. Would you very specifically address Romans nine? Yeah, I, I, be I believe Romans nine. That's specific. That analogy of I believe the Romans of nine. And the people of uh, Esau and all that. I will but absolutely. That's never really, that absolutely, we'll cover it. All right. Okay. All right, man. We'll talk to you. Bye bye. We're going to Tyler in uh, Mesa, Arizona, line two. Tyler, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi, uh, Sean. Uh, my name is Tyler. I am Christian. I live in Mesa, Arizona. Um, here with my girlfriend Shelby, who is who is Mormon. And uh, this past these past couple months, we've been um, really, really searching through the Bible and and the Mormon faith as well. But um, I just had I had a couple questions. Um, I wanted to ask you what the best the best way you can explain the difference between grace and works, like what's mentioned in Romans eleven verse six. All right. Well, let me turn to Romans eleven six. All right. Romans eleven six says, 
Okay, and if by grace, then it is no more works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it is works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. Okay, I'm, let me help you really quickly, okay? Okay. If we look at the New Testament, throughout the New Testament, when it talks about works, and especially look at James 2, that work is what? It is to believe and to love. That is the work, to believe and to love. I can go, we can go through and spend three hours showing you in scripture how that is supported. But in the end, you will find that the, the works that we do are to believe on Christ Jesus and then to love God and our fellow man as a result. We are saved by grace, not of anything that we can do. Christ did the work for us in obeying the law perfectly. He did the labor of dying to his will perfectly, goes to the cross, shed his blood, resurrected the third day. The work is, in, is done, and when we believe on him, it's imputed to us as righteousness. That is how we are saved by his grace. That's why the thief on the cross, he merely acknowledged that Christ was not deserving, that he was the son of God, even though it wasn't spoken. And we see that that grace was given to him, a gift unmerited. He did nothing with his life to merit that free gift of salvation given to him. If it was his works, if it was his efforts, then grace would not be grace. It would, like, it would be like saying, I am a married bachelor. I know a lot of guys like to believe that they are, but uh, that's not true. If you're married, you're married. If you are a bachelor, you're a bachelor. You can't be a married bachelor. And so you can't have grace and works in the same pot. They, they cannot coexist. Now, once you've received that free gift, free, you're saved. You are brought into the relationship with God through Christ Jesus. He fills you with his Holy Spirit, and that teaches us to then love. And that, so we have belief, we get the grace, and we love. And we love, why? Because we have been loved first. He loved us in our lousy, sinful state. He saved us in the state that we are. He did it, and he gave it to us freely. And with that great gift that we've been given, we then look at others and say, you know, I'm not going to be so harsh on you. I've been forgiven too, and love starts to rule. So that is the work. The grace is the salvation, the work is the love. Does that help? Are you there? Did I put you to sleep? No, you, you just cut out for a second. Oh, does that, I, thought, th I don't know, I thought you cut out for a second, you must have just stopped talking, sorry. Oh, it's okay, does that make any sense? Yeah, that makes sense to me. How about to Sweetie? Shelby. Shelby, does that um, make sense? Yeah, it's all right. I just believe that works and grace coincide because once you have the faith in Christ, then you want to do the works. That's exactly, that's exactly what I just said. That's exactly what I just said. But the, but the works do not save you. You've already been saved is the point. That's the grace part. So you're right. I mean, a Christian who says, hey, I have been saved and they don't love... They don't do the works, and those are the works, Shelby, not going to temples and obeying Sabbath. It's the love. So show me a Christian who says I've been saved and they don't love. First John says they're liars. Okay, so you're yeah. right. But you have to understand if you think that it is by your works that you are going to get saved, this is what it's like, Shelby. It's like you walk by the cross and you look up at Jesus and you point at him and you say, hey, thanks for all the suffering and the perfect life you've lived. I really appreciate it. I've gotta add some things to what you've done in order to make it to heaven. That's kind of what you're saying when you think that it's your efforts that are going to uh, bring you to God, and it's a lie. Hey, we're gonna send you a book. Stay on the line and we're gonna send you a book. Will you hold on? Sure. Okay, thanks. Hold is... Hold is right here, hold. All right, let's go to uh, Randall in Houston, Texas. Randall, you're on Heart of the Matter. Randall. Uh, yes, hello. How you doing, Randall? Real good, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Um, 
let me start off and say I've been watching you for several years, and I really enjoy the show. Uh, however, the question I have is uh, this, that my son son attends a, a local school, and um, there was a there was a Mormon there, and he was speaking speaking with him, and he said that he asked him to attend the Mormon church, and my son said, "Well, I can't accept uh, God as a man that has many wives." And this Mormon looked at him and looked at him and said, "We don't." accept that now was this mormon lying or is he ignorant of his own faith it could be both i mean it could be either uh randall many lds don't know their own doctrine most uh and and, and so he's either you're right it's a really good question because he's either an ignoramus of the faith that he's devoted his entire life to and that's unfortunate that's hard but it's true or he's a liar well, he asks, why would, why would the Mormons lie? Why don't they be straightforward and honest about what they accept? The, the house of cards is too tall. It's too high. They have built upon a false premise from the minute Smith said that he had gold plates and ran through a forest fighting off robbers carrying the 210-pound burden under one arm. I mean, from that point forward, they started building a house of cards that right now towers over much of the world. And to start pulling out things and telling the truth openly, publicly, in context, is just too costly. Well, you know, I appreciate everything about educating us about their faith, but I mean, surely Mormons realize they cannot continue hiding all of this, right? I mean, they yeah. can't continue this, uh, uh, true, or? Yeah, they're coming to terms with that, and I think they are scrambling to figure out what to do. There's a lot of effort being put into denial, to moving on, to rewriting church history, and, uh, you know, it's gonna be interesting to see how they handle it, but I think they are scared. I think the internet has done a lot to uh, shake the, ch the church at its foundations. We'll just see what happens. In the meantime, uh, Randall, we keep preaching Jesus. And uh, you know, I gotta tell you something really quickly. My family is strict LDS. And uh, I, uh, I, I got a text from my sister today. I called her and uh, she texted me back. She said, I'm in a Bible study right now. The teacher's awesome. This was not a Mormon Bible study. So yeah, I, it is. It's taken years, and slowly this is happening from the efforts of many people. So keep praying for him, Randall, sharing the truth. All right, well, well, well once again, Sean, I really appreciate your show. Thanks so much for watching. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Right. Right, thank you. We got another Texan. They say goodbye so slowly. Uh, I wonder... <laughs> <laughs> we have John in San Antonio. John, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, Sean, how's it going? I'm going, it's going well. How are you? I'm doing well. Uh, I got two things that I wanted to talk to you about today. The first one is kind of an argument that I thought of that I was wondering what your take would be on. Go. And first of all, is the genealogy of Jesus seems to be very important in the Bible. Um, they, they specifically wanted to make sure that people understand that he was a descendant of King David. Uh, because that met up with the, um, the prophecies about the Messiah. And in, when you argue with them about um, polygamy, and, and you say, you know, under no circumstances was polygamy advocated in the Bible, one thing that I've never heard a Mormon counter that point to, but is a counter if I was still in the TBM, in the true believing perspective, I would say, well, you know, Jesus came through the line of Solomon. And Solomon was the son of Bathsheba. And yeah. Bathsheba was a polygamist wife of King David. And God could have had Jesus come through the lineage of King David's first wife, but it was important that it came through Solomon, the polygamist wife. Yeah. And I was just wondering uh, what, your, what your take on that would be. 
number one. And then number two, and I'll hang up after I ask this and, and, and listen off the air, okay. is um, saved in your sin or saved from your sin? That's kind of a, a, a question that I've heard a lot of people toss around, and I was just wondering if you could give us our, your take on you know, why that question is important and what your perspective is uh, from the biblical answer to that. And I'll hang up and listen off here. It's a great, two great questions. Uh, the second one, I'm not sure how to answer because I've flip-flopped back and forth. The first one, though, um, this is how I present it. Um, God allows people to choose. He knows what they're going to do. It doesn't thwart his plan, and he works in and around human history to bring about his goodwill. Now, the Old Testament has a lot of pictures for us in presenting who Christ the, uh, uh, the Son of God is and Christ the Son of Man is. And you'll note that the lineage of him being the Son of Man, while it may have started off from King David, King David was an adulterer and a murderer. And if you go before King David and his adulterous uh, relationship with Bathsheba, who soon became his wife, and even though Christ did come from a line of polygamists, you go to Tamar uh, and, and how Christ came from that, and that was Judah sleeping with his sister-in-law. And that came, and so what we have is a whole line of really, really cruddy uh, genealogy from which Jesus came. So we have kind of a paradox. We have the Son of God, pure light, pure love, coming and becoming incarnate in a genetic uh, history with a genealogy of whores, murders, and liars. Why? Because it's showing us that the Messiah didn't come from royal lineage of perfection, like they might do back in, in England or something, like uh, Downton Abbey. Uh, it, what we have there is we have Jesus as a man being the worst of the worst. And that is a beautiful picture because uh, we see that God came down and he didn't reign as a king here on earth of all this royalty. He went down below everything to save us. So that's how I would respond to anybody who brought that point up. In terms of in or from, I would say both. I don't know, however, I, I mean, to me, because we are saved in our sin, we don't repent first. Uh, we don't repent first to be saved. We repent later when we change our mind about the source of salvation. So we're in our sin, like it says, he saved us while we were yet sinners but from sin as well. First John says, you can't sin. Did you know that? You can't sin if you abide in Christ. Now we know it's not true in terms of sins of the flesh. We know Christians who are abiding in Christ, they do sin in terms of the flesh, but it means we don't sin against the two commandments we mentioned earlier. We're not sinning against faith and we're not sinning against love. You might get angry, you, you change, you repent, all that, but we are covered in the blood once and for all, saved. And so you can't sin if you're abiding in Christ. So I would say it's both. Some of you may have insights on that. Call us and share us. Tell us what they are really quickly. Um, one I wanted to share with you about, there's a number of emails. Oh, by the way, we're 2,000 emails behind. We were that way a month ago. We read every one of them. We appreciate your insights. We try to get back to you, but please know that we appreciate it. One is from Heath M. He says, is it too late to plead with the owners uh, of allowing Harlot of Matter Ministry to return to TV 20? It's too late. That's a done deal. Uh, remember the earlier explanation of being in law, being in liberty, and being in love? Well, the um, stance for TV 20 is kind of in between law and liberty. They're kind of in between that area and just the general thinking. I don't blame them. It's their station. They got to do what they want. And that's where they sit. So in love, I receive that. That's where they are. We have moved more on the radical side of liberty and love. And so there's a disconnect there. They don't want us back on there. But don't, uh, you know, we love them. We move forward. They still have plenty of good, excellent programs. X-Files with uh, Bishop Earl is uh, still running on TV 20. Check that out. Uh, what Love Is This with Doris Hansen is still there. Um, and I know uh, uh, Jason, Jason? Wallace. Jason Wallace is doing a program. 
Dave Bartosowitz does a program called The Jesus Experience that's airing on that program. Terry Long is doing some kind of program, I think right now, on TV20 for uh, Calvary Chapel, Salt Lake City. So the station is good. They still g g do good programming. We, uh, we support and bless them and uh, bid them Godspeed. TV, I mean, uh, Aletheia Ministries, Heart of the Matter, will not be back on TV20. But that being said, uh, we have some really good things happening with the station. We are talking and in dialogue with a number of stations about some opportunities for 24-7. We have been working on streaming here programs 24-7. Uh, there's all sorts of things in the works to build up our own network, so to speak, and there's a lot of good information that we can distribute out to you in that name. So keep us in your prayers. And uh, here's uh, uh, information, what is this? We are, oh, on the NRB network, we're on DirecTV channel 378. If you have Roku players, you can go through Sky Angels channel 181. Fridays beginning April 5th, 10 p.m., re-airs Tuesdays. That's hard of the matter on the NRB network. Every day we get two or three uh, emails. Uh, we get 10 calls a week from someone who around the nation is watching on the NRB. That's getting out there too. So TV20, watch them, support them, the programs, but we will not be part of that any longer. How much time? I didn't see you, Derek. Three. Okay, really quickly. For the life of me, I cannot understand how until, oh no, no, we'll do that next week, sorry. One email we got, it just helped us, encouraged us greatly. We have a graphic for it. I'm gonna read it and we'll end. You ready? Ah, uh, Mr. McCraney, I have a love-hate relationship with you, actually a hate-love relationship. Your show is instrumental in my leaving the LDS church and finding a relationship with Jesus. My husband started to question the religion first and would watch your show. I hated it. I'd. I'd hear your voice on the TV and my blood would boil. Just walking into the room and hearing your voice would bring out such anger in me. I had to find out for myself if what you and my husband were saying was true. I'm blessed to have a job that allows me to listen to whatever, so I'm listening to, I listened to your shows at work and was blown away. I was a convert. My husband and I married in the temple. It caused a lot of problems in our marriage for a year or so while we were each led separately to the truth. I recently listened to you give a, your testimony at a conference, I believe, in Arizona. I'm amazed at the wild ride you and your family have been on. I thank God that he's called you to this, and thank you that you answered. I can only imagine how difficult ministry can be for uh, you, and that includes all of you guys because you're all in ministry too. She's speaking to me, but it represents anybody who is reaching out to people who are LDS at times and wanted to know the fruit of your efforts. In the tiny bit of evangelism I've done, you guys will understand this, it gets real discouraging real fast, does, doesn't it? We're planting seeds, aren't we? Not only was I led to a saving relationship with Jesus, God drew my agnostic dad to himself and he began a relationship with Jesus 13 days before he passed into eternity. I'm so thankful that God has put me in the path of solid Bible preaching men. I'm so glad I wasn't led out of the LDS church into atheism or to another false system. I was fully behind you spending your evangelical church. I won't go into too much depth, but I think you nailed it on the head when you said the LDS does church right. I still agree with that. I enjoy my pastor's teaching, but find myself missing the LDS church model. Maybe something the Christian church can learn. Hopefully that makes sense. I wish the Christian church would address modesty. That's one thing I am thankful to the LDS church for. I was never grateful for that teaching. Uh, <laughs> sorry. Thank you for so much for answering God's call. I pray that Heart of the Matter is able to broadcast on TV20 again. That won't happen. Your show, uh, being on local TV, was instrumental in us being saved with love, your family. Patty, we thank you, Patty, for that. And those of you who have stuck with us, continue to. It's gonna get tough, because we're gonna, we're gonna seek after truth, and we're gonna really probe some things as we continue on. We're gonna finish up with Calvinism really soon and move on to a few other things uh, that pertain to the LDS Christian debate. We'll see you next week here on Heart of the Matter. Hey, there's a...